If you'd turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 23, as Tom was reading this morning. As we read through this scripture, there's words that really kind of pop out at you, and there's things that are repeated. And there's some interesting propositions that Jesus puts forth to his people there this morning. I want to ask you to think about some things that are impossible. What are some things that are impossible for a man to do? Man was not physically gifted to fly. After church this afternoon, it would be ridiculous if I would tell my wife, Honey, drive on home. I'll, I'll fly over in just a moment. I'll be there a little bit later this afternoon. I cannot fly. I do not have the physical gift to be able to fly. No man has ever been blessed with gills so that he can breathe oxygen out of water and live underwater as a fish. As much as I enjoyed swimming, and especially swimming underwater with a mask to see fish and the underwater world as a young man, Inevitably, I had to come up for air, for I was a man and I was not a fish. Because of the structures of our bodies, we cannot lift a two-ton boulder over our heads, can we? And carry it for a long distance. Maybe take it home and add to our landscaping around the garden. We cannot lift that much weight and carry it around because of the structure of how God has made us. Now an ant can. I read this. An ant can lift 20 times their body weight. For me that would be like lifting 4,000 pounds. And not just getting it off the ground. But getting it off the ground and carrying it a long distance. I did read that in Nepal there are porters that carry luggage and some of these men can actually carry almost 200% of their body weight for long distances. It's amazing what some of these guys can do. But that's twice their body weight, not 20 times. In all of these examples, however, with thought, effort, time, and money, men have overcome their inability and been able to fly. Not just home this afternoon, but across the planet. Distances of thousands of miles across the globe. And many of you all work for companies that build craft that do this. He has been able to travel throughout much of the undersea world for weeks, months at a time. Ask John. Submerged below the water surface for months at a time because of the use of submarines. By use of mechanical cranes, he can lift steel weighing Thousands of pounds, hundreds of feet high up in the air to the top of a building. Is there nothing impossible for a man if he has enough time, intelligence, hard work, and money? Watch in this story as the disciples wrestle with this question and hear the answer of our Lord Jesus. I'd like to ask you to stand with me and pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we have your word set before us and you know the weakness and, and the flaws in my abilities. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will overcome those. Lord, we realize that the word of God can only be understood as your spirit gives understanding for these are spiritual truths 
Lord, we do not want to be ignorant. We want to know you. We want to glorify you. We want to see you as you are. Please manifest yourself through your word this morning. The things that would pull us away that the enemy might want to distract us with that our own flesh and natural uh, tendencies would pull away. Lord, help us to overcome that. Draw us near to you and speak to us this morning. Change us with your word. Show us who you are. Convict us of sin. Encourage us uh, in, in those lives that need lifting. Lord, we need you. There is no one like you. And we ask for your intervention, your work in us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 23 says, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. This is an impossible hope. Uh, We get an initial warning from Jesus here. We hear the initial warning. It says Jesus looked around. It's a a Greek word, periblepo, which means to take a commanding survey of the circumstances, to look around and see what what is going on around you very carefully, analytically. We read in Luke uh, a little bit differently here. We see Jesus was even focused. And when Jesus saw that the rich young ruler became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus not only surveyed the faces of the men around him, but he apparently paid special attention to the sorrow-filled face of the young rich man who is leaving in anguish. Last week when we looked at that, one of the translations is literally his face fell. He was crushed. He was broken. And it is clear that the young man is not going to gain what he came for. Remember, this is the setting. Jesus and his disciples, they've been ministering to families, to these little children, and, and they begin to pull away, and up the road comes running this young, wealthy ruler, probably the ruler of a local synagogue, uh, a wealthy man by the standards of those days, and he would have had to pick up his robe and run along, and it would have been kind of a, an embarrassing, maybe shocking scene to see this very sophisticated, dignified man running up to Jesus. And when he gets there, he falls on his knees. And he begs Jesus, what must I do, good teacher, to have eternal life? What can I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus enters into a dialogue with this fellow. And and the fellow seems to have done quite well with himself, socially, morally. He'd done the right things. But Jesus says, one thing you lack Tell him, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. Take up your cross, then come and follow me. The young man, it says, went away sorrowful. He did not want to pay that price. And this is the setting you have here because the disciples are watching this. And some questions begin to come up in their minds. And there's good reason because this is, we have to always keep in mind, this is a different culture in many ways than what we've grown up or that what we've seen. But it speaks to our culture. The scriptures speak to everything. But we want to try to understand it as the disciples would have seen it in those days. How do you gain entry into the kingdom of God? We know that this is the primary theme because if you look at verse 23, verse 24, and verse 25, that same phrase appears in each of those three verses. So what we can grasp, this is the theme. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to these men. And it's what he's trying to get across to us 2,000 years later. The Word of God is so awesome and that it is timeless. 
He was speaking then. He is speaking now. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Jesus says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 24. He kind of repeats it in much the same way. It's repeated for clarity to really get the message across. And the disciples were astonished or amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again. And he said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Some of your verses will just say, for those to enter the kingdom of God without the trust in riches. But the point is made very clear here as we see what happens and what it's unfold. The Reformed Study Bible reminds us that it is not because riches are evil and disqualifies those who possess them. That is not what Jesus is saying. So what is he saying? Well, there were rich men in the history of God's kingdom. We begin with Abraham. He was perhaps one of the wealthiest men in the whole region at that time. And God added to his wealth constantly. You have Job, a very, very successful man. And then in the New Testament, you have someone like Joseph of Arimathea, a man who seemed to have really trusted in Christ and had given what he had in the way of this very expensive tomb to have Jesus buried there. And he was a wealthy man. So, so what is Jesus saying when he brings this up about wealth. Well, he's not saying, but there are at least two major pitfalls or snares described in Scripture that may ensnare the rich. Let's just briefly look at these because as we survey ourselves here and look at the lifestyles that we lead, the comforts that we enjoy, there's probably not a single person in here that couldn't be qualified as a rich person. And, and I know if you've heard that, you know, compared with the world. But it is true. We have so many benefits in our lifestyle. So what could be some of the pitfalls? Well, first of all, uh, there's a self-confidence or trust in the influence of wealth. We do know that money sometimes greases the skid. Or opens the door that's not open to other people. It gives educational opportunities. It might provide medical care. It might provide uh, different levels of comfort. Or vacation opportunities. Things that you wouldn't have without that. But I think a deeper problem is the self-absorption. That wealth and maintaining its comforts and its advantages and its power. Those things become a preoccupation and we're focused on those. Now, earlier in this week, I was reading in Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 7, and it spoke on this topic. It, it is Jeremiah, and he's prophesying of the judgment to come on the people of Moab. And here's what he said. For because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Chemosh shall go forth into captivity. That was a god at that time. His priests and his princes together. Jeremiah 48, 7. It is true indeed that riches do not in their own nature hinder us from following God. John Calvin wrote this. But in consequence of the depravity of the human mind, it is scarcely possible for those who have a great abundance to avoid being intoxicated by them. So they who are exceedingly rich are held by Satan bound, as it were in chains, that they may not raise their thoughts to heaven. Nay, more they bury and entangle themselves and become utter slaves to the earth. 
Jesus presents a parable that brought out some of the dangers of riches in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, choke the word, and it becomes unprofitable. Paul later wrote to a young church leader by the name of Timothy. He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and a snare, then into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Then in 1 Timothy 6, 17, and said a little later, Paul said to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And then finally, 1 John 2. The Apostle John warned, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, those are warnings, and, and they're legitimate warnings, and we can see how they sometimes prevent us from walking faithfully with God, from listening to His call, from obeying in different directions that we just didn't want to go there. But, these are potential pitfalls, and they're dug out for the wealthy in this life, but that is still not the essential point in this exchange with His disciples. Now, I've spent some time there, but I want to move on. He then brings, Jesus brings this difficulty of entry into the kingdom of God into sharp focus and more shocking focus in the next verse. Verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This little phrase seems to have originated from a Persian phrase which actually was, it is easier, more difficult for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. But it was adopted in Jewish colloquial terms because they don't have elephants in that area. They have camels. And they used the largest living animal that they had around them to show how this illustration goes. It, it is more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now you may have heard explanations of this proverb. Uh, there are two main ones that are used to kind of soften the blow of this statement. To make it perhaps maybe a little more uh, understandable or acceptable. One such idea is that there was a small gate in the wall of the city of Jerusalem which would require visiting merchants to have their load, loaded camels get down on their knees and kind of ooch through that smaller opening for security reasons. They could get in there. How many have ever heard that explanation for the eye of the camel? Okay. It's out there. However, there is no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed especially prior to the ninth century. Besides that, if there would have been a full there would have been a full size gate with a hundred within a hundred yards of either side of this small gate that the merchant could have just taken his camel and said, No, we're going in over here. And they walk in easily. There was no need for such a gate. There's no evidence that there was such. The other popular interpretation of the analogy Jesus uses is that the Greek term Camelos for camel was mistakenly entered by a copyist because of a single character difference. 
And it came in the place of the word kamilos, which means a large rope or a cable. Now you think about that and you might think, well, it would seem that it would be more difficult to stuff a grown camel through the eye of a needle than a large rope. But in reality, both are impossible, aren't they? They are. You could do neither one. And it's also very unlikely that the exact same mistake by copyists would have occurred in all three of the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That that exact same mess or mistake would have been made. So I don't think it's either one of those explanations. Jesus' purpose in this word picture is obvious. The camel and the needle idea boldly point out to the impossibility of entry into the kingdom of heaven. The impossibility of being saved. The impossibility of having eternal life. One of the reasons we can believe that is look at the response of the disciples. Look how they respond in verse 26. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? These are men without hope at this point. The disciples, it says, were greatly astonished. Even more astonished, some of your versions say. Exceedingly astonished. Astonished out of measure. Even more amazed. They were shocked. They were shocked before. But now they are really reeling from the words of Jesus. Who can be saved? Who can enter into the kingdom of God? This stunned group of disciples believe this is, is shocking because they naturally are thinking along the lines of Jewish tradition. And here's where we want to try to, to look at how they saw things. First of all, rich men and women were rich because they were blessed by God. And we would agree with that. But they were blessed by God and because they were so blessed, they had a special place in the sight of God. While poor people were often thought to be cursed by God as demonstrated by their financial hardship. The Talmud, and this is a Jewish document of ceremonial and civil law, actually made it clear that by offering alms to the poor, a man could obtain or purchase salvation. One author pointed out that a wealthy person could buy more sacrifices and offerings and thereby purchase redemption. The disciples' outcry demonstrated that they too believed that the rich, if, if they weren't a shoe-in, to be able to enter heaven, then at least they had a better shot than anyone else. And they certainly had a ton of advantages that the poor did not possess. In other words, it is now shockingly obvious to the disciples that if that rich man can't make it into the kingdom of God, we don't have a chance either. No one has a chance. And this is not hyperbola by Jesus. He is not using an extreme or an exaggeration in order to get his point across. It is the absolute truth. No one has a legitimate possibility of entering into the kingdom of God. Do you, do you believe that? None of you has a shot at entering the kingdom of God. While his disciples may be wailing in shock, this is exactly what Jesus wants them to realize. In fact, it is the impossibility of it that will drive the disciples to the only hope possible. That is their rabbi, their master, Jesus Christ. I wish you could be sometimes with us when we have conversations in Old Town. Last night, another brother and I and, and Rami, we were speaking with these uh, five young uh, men seated there around the fountain area and a young lady. 
And this was the message that we were trying to get across to them. This stuff, we learn it not so that we can take it home and soak on it. We learn it so that we can share so people can be saved. Study to show yourself approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. It is not just to add an intellect, spiritual intellectual level for your life. To say, yeah, I go to, I go to New Hope Bible Church and we exposit the scriptures every week. We really try to look at this and dig deep. And I listen to MacArthur and Sproul and Begg and everybody else. And I get another four or five hours in the Word. I am spiritual. So what? We need to take this and live by it and bring it to the world in which we live. What I was going to say. <laughs> With these, these five young men sitting there and this young lady, they had, they had never even thought about the fact that they will face judgment at some point and that they have no hope of being saved. That, that they are lost forever, eternally in hell, in condemnation and judgment. And, and that is the first part of what we want people to understand so that they understand what a great Savior this Jesus is. That He changes all of that, but He is the only one who can. It says Jesus looked at them. He looked at the, the disciples and essentially He's saying, you've got it. With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God... All things are possible. There is but one single hope. There is but one single hope. It is not about changes in your life. Those can, those can indicate some things about what has happened. But changes do not bring you into the kingdom of God. That you stop doing this sin. That you stopped lying. That you stop doing drugs. That you stop watching porn. You stop getting angry with your wife. You stop neglecting your children. You stop neglecting prayer and failing to study God's word. Nor is it about the positive things that you have been doing. I started volunteering at the rest home. I've memorized the book of Romans. I've visited the orphans and widows in their distress. I've sold all my possessions and given the money to the poor. And now I come to church three times a week and evangelize on Saturday nights in Old Town. None of that cuts it. None of that gets you any closer to the kingdom of heaven. Nor is this about the fact that you may feel a lot better about yourself now that you've started coming to this church and, and you've been a part of this community. Uh, I've learned to accept myself. I've left the old life and I feel good about the new. That, that is not what it means to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Last night we had one, one of the most unusual opportunities. A young man who came right out of the book of Mark. And we were talking with him, and he, he had gone from a life of, of drugs and street life, living a homeless man, and he was cleaned up completely. And he had a job, and he had a wife there with him, and he was excited about these things about God. And he was telling me all that God had done in his life. And, and bear with me, as you, and you might think, well, that's, that's a little strange. He was telling me all these things, and, and the brother was with me. Uh, he said, one minute I think, man, this guy really knows God. And then the next minute I wondered, what does he know? And we got to the point finally where I said to him, I said, Michael, if, if you were to stand before Christ in judgment, uh, would, would he invite you into his heaven at this point? 
Or would you be condemned to hell? And he said, well, I believe in God, but I, frankly, I don't know what he would say. And so we pressed that, and he'd go back to all the works that he'd done, all the things that had been changed in his life. And we'd come back to that point. Michael, what, what must you do to be saved? And, and it was the same answer over and over again. I'm not sure. I don't know. And we'd share scripture, and we'd share scripture. And we talked for probably 45 minutes, I think it was. And then at one point, he, you could almost see his shoulders just relax. And a smile came on his face, and he said, I think I get it. You guys are telling me, I just need to trust Jesus and chill out about this stuff. I can rest in him. And, and me and the other guy, we were almost ready to shout, that is it. Jesus has done it. Jesus has worked in your life. I do believe that he pulled you out of drugs so that you could think clearly. He pulled you out of the street life. He pulled you out of a lot of things. But you did not know him and trust in him for salvation until you knew it was him and him alone. And, and it was just a fantastic moment to see God open the eyes of a blind man. And yet God had done much in his life to prepare him for that. Our God is amazing. That there is hardly a single pattern that is repeated in a person's life when they come to Christ. I, I've seen that hundreds of times over. And yet we must come through a very narrow gate and a narrow way and that is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, Jesus was judgmental in that way. He provided everything we need for life and godliness. His death on the cross was what was required. Jesus did not say to these guys, these disciples, well, if you clean up your act, you will get to heaven. Or if you really, really change, then clean up your act, you will get to heaven. The question is, what have you believed? It was written in the Gospel of John, verse 12, chapter 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in his name. As many as received him. That's a gift. To those who believe in his name. In verse 27, Jesus is saying eternal life is only made possible by God. If you would, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 31. Some of you already have identified this is the new covenant that was presented in the Old Testament. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke... Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Let me ask you, who made the covenant? Who made the covenant? God made the covenant. Okay, what does God do in this covenant? What does he give them? 
Many things. Tell me a couple of them. Put the law within them. You're right. Amen. What else? Mercy. Mercy. Great. Forgive sin. Forgive sin. Amen. We can look at that and you can soak in what God has done. Now let me ask you this. What part did the people play so far in this covenant? Now, the only thing we read about them really was God was a faithful husband to them and they broke it. That's all they have really brought to the covenant. What did God's people do to deserve this covenant? I didn't, did they? If God does not do it, it is impossible, is what Jesus is saying. For the mind, wrote Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, for the mind, what is it set upon? It is set on the flesh, and it is hostile to God. It is not a friend to God. The mind is hostile. It is an enemy to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It not, it not only doesn't desire that, but it cannot submit itself to the law of God. Turn to Romans 3, verse 21. We're going to look at a couple of sections of Scripture here that if you're interested in how to share the gospel with people from the scriptures, learn these. These are so good. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just in that he will condemn sin. He will pour out his wrath upon the sinner. But he is the justifier in that he will take your place on that cross. And the wrath that should have been poured out upon your, your abundant sin, your overflowing sin, your filthy wretchedness, he takes that wrath and endures it in our place. The gospel is the most amazing thing you can ever imagine. It is an eternal reward. It is an eternal blessing. It, it's just amazing. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7 here. Ephesians 2, 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And see how he repeats that. That's who, that's who we walked under. That was our master. That was our leader. 
among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, then raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for God good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is all about God. He came when we were dead, when we were filthy, when we were ruled by Satan, and pulled us out of that. Romans 5. Verse 6, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. In due time Christ died for the ungodly. Not those who had cleaned it up, not those faithful Jews, not those who had gave alms for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. That's how men would operate. But God, one of the greatest phrases in Scripture, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, having been made right before God, acceptable to God by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Did any man or woman make this possible? No. We have done everything that makes it impossible. Do you see that? We were were not a, a neutral playing field. We have done everything you can imagine... To make grace impossible. To make our entry into the kingdom of heaven impossible. That was the rich young ruler's part. It is your part. It was my part. We have literally made it impossible to be a child of God and escape God's wrath. His wrath that is just toward our sin of constant love and rebellion against Him. It is not that we are in pretty bad shape. It is not that we are in a spiritual coma needing to be woken up. No, the scriptures tell us we are dead. God says, we are dead. We need life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Can we do it then? Jesus says, it is impossible with men. One preacher described it this way. Only when he gives us a new heart, will we then be willing to respond to the demands of Jesus to take up our cross and to follow him. Until then, we may be intrigued, We may be interested, we may be sad, we may be convinced, we may be moved, we may be stimulated, we remain unchanged. But look at the response of Peter. 
Verse 28, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Peter's hope in verse 28, left all. Well, this, they really did do this. They had left everything and they had followed after Jesus. Especially later on when, after his resurrection. They, look at no, they don't look back at all. They leave everything behind. And we have followed you. And this they have done. In Matthew 19, Peter even goes on to say, What then will there be for us? And we don't know whether he was kind of assuming that there would be or, or feeling like, you know, they deserve something at this point. We don't, we don't know what his motive was in saying that. Uh, one commentator said the apostles, though they had scarcely begun the course, were hastening to demand the prize. I, I don't know if this is that type of a demand. But look what Jesus says. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. They have left. The disciples are admittedly leaving behind everything. But they are also receiving. Verse 30. Who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. You're receiving a hundred times. Whatever you give up, you're receiving a hundred times more. And, and I think this is Jesus trying to speak to us in a minimal way so we can get it. It's one of those things. He's, what he's telling us is far more than we can imagine. You, you take a, a very young child. And what do you want for your birthday? And, and they, may, they may want like a pink little dinosaur that down at the Walmart or something. And if they can get that, they're going to be happy. Well, and you're thinking, well, maybe now that's what you want. But I have far more riches to give you than that. I could buy a hundred of those dinosaurs and give them to you. And it wouldn't even begin to be what I want to offer to you. You see the way he's using this comparison? hundred times is not to give an exact uh, accounting of what he's going to give us. It's to get us into the mind that we realize we have no idea the greatness of what God has in store. As one commentator explained, when the church was born, it consisted in part of pilgrims who had come from Jewish settlements outside of Israel. After their conversion, the new believers did not want to go home because there was no church except for the one in Jerusalem. They stayed, some of them permanently, in the homes of the believers who were already there. Those believers fed them, housed them, and loved and cared for them. Years later, the Apostle Paul would travel all over the Mediterranean region, collecting an offering to take back to the Jerusalem church so that it could continue to care for the needy believers there. End quote. They had received eternal life. They had received part of the family of God. And their lives were radically ramped up in every blessing imaginable. Now they had family that would die for them. They had family that would share. Some of these homes in Jerusalem at the beginning were doing fine, but they too lost their jobs. Many of them lost businesses. They were excluded from the culture because of their faith in Christ. So their wealth began to dwindle. And there was, there was poverty in the church in Jerusalem. But there was joy in the church in Jerusalem. So they had a hundred times more than what they'd ever had before, even though from a worldly sense, they looked like that things were bleak. But the church began to take care of them. Different churches, churches that were in poverty, sent gifts to Jerusalem. Churches that were wealthy from totally different cultures, 
non-Jewish churches, sent gifts to help the church in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. How did they understand what these riches were? Because they had the Spirit. Until you have the Spirit of God, you will never understand the depth of the riches of God. The hundredfold time wealth that you have been given because of the gospel of Jesus. That he has poured out upon you. Without the Spirit, you will never see that. You'll be like the child wanting a pink dinosaur. And saying, Lord, give me two. I really like that. No. The Spirit of God will teach you to look and see life so differently than you've ever imagined. And the wealth will be untold. Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Invest. Invest in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to ask you an interesting thought here. If you could take your pen and erase anything out of that list of what Jesus says would be given to you in exchange for what you give up, look at the list. What would you erase off of there? Pardon? Persecutions. Isn't that true? It seems odd to be on the list. But it is not an accident. And it is not an anomaly. Persecutions accomplish more in our lives. And let me just say from an observation in our assembly, some of the things that we're going through now and the, and the challenges that are being put forth for decisions for families and livelihoods and what direction to go are, is developing a maturity and a spiritual level that has been exciting for me to see. To pray with some of you men, to, to read your testimonies that you've submitted with grace and humility. It's been exciting. But, it's, but this is just minimal. The, the, there is much ahead for us. And it's not something that we should pull out of the list and say, well, uh, maybe that, but certainly these. Put that in the list. God will work through these things. It will perhaps be the greatest of the list of blessings. Romans 8 verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him. That we may also be glorified together. Philippians 1. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe in him. But also to suffer for his sake. We have done very little of that. 2 Timothy 3. Persecutions. Before I quote the verse, I want to say persecutions are not to be considered the weak point in the promise. In fact, the persecutions may have held greater spiritual benefit than all the other blessings. Second Timothy, but you have carefully followed my direct doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then we come to the last thing promised, and that's eternal life. The rich young ruler never did define eternal life when he came, did he? 
But I'm not sure he would have been satisfied with it under the condition of his heart. John chapter 17 verse 3 reads, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is not a prolonged life that we're talking about. When we talk about eternal life, we are talking about a completely other life that has depth, it has dimensions that we've never imagined. We see 3D. The dimensions of the eternal life that Jesus promises is like 5, 6, 7D. Dimensions that we've never imagined. Colored so vivid. Depth of, of trust and of peace and of joy that we can only imagine and think about. These are the promises of eternal life and it is all centered in knowing Jesus Christ. That is enough and that is everything. And then Jesus finishes and says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. There's several different ways to see what's being said here. Some are, would say, well, those who think they're at the front of the line will be at the back and those who are at the back will be moved to the front. Others have said what this simply means is that we all will be the same. There will be no lifting up of others because of their past, because of uh, their status because of their wealth. We will all enter in the same. Some have said it's a warning to the disciples to realize don't get haughty about where you are now. After all, one in your midst will be the son of perdition who will be sent to destruction. And one who is not in your midst who is persecuting you in the next few years will become one of you. Let's conclude. I, I want to return to the question that started all this amazing instruction from Jesus. It was a rich young ruler of a man who ran up to Jesus, fell on his knees and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer that Jesus gave the young man and his disciples resulted in the response, If that is the case, who can be saved? And Jesus wisely drops the bomb. It is impossible. It is impossible for anyone. But not with God. For with God all things are possible. So I ask you this morning, has the impossible happened in your life? Has the impossible happened in your life? You're thinking, I'm not sure. Maybe you think, well, I don't think so. It's impossible. I can't do it. Jesus says, believe and be saved. But it's impossible. Believe and be saved. But you just made the point that it is impossible. It is impossible. Believe and follow Christ. In closing, turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. That meant the hand had no strength. It was totally useless and hung there lame and limp. And they watched Jesus, the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, 
to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. What's the problem with that command? It's impossible. It's a withered hand. It has no strength. It has hung there perhaps for years. But Jesus commands him, stretch out his hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. It is impossible, but not with God. Believe, trust in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, please wipe all this self-confidence and self-assurance out of my prideful and wicked heart and out of my brothers and sisters as well. That we would come to you, as we saw a week ago, as, as infant children who have no merit, who have no strength, who really have nothing, Father, to offer you. Lord, help us to see ourselves as we truly are. But even more importantly, Lord, help us to see you as the God who made the impossible possible and did so at such great cost that you would give your son Jesus Christ in our stead, in our place on the cross and pour wrath upon him that we deserve so that our sin has been paid for. Our account is clean and that Jesus would place his righteous life upon us, that that is our reputation, that that is what we stand with before you. Lord God, every time it seems that we focus on the gospel, it becomes more and more amazing, more and more wise, more and more powerful. Thank you, Lord God, that you would would give us such a gift. And Father, I pray for those who who cannot see you or hear you yet. Lord, please give a new heart. Turn their hearts to you. And I pray that they would come and trust in Jesus. You are worthy, Lord, for eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.